If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the BBC History Magazine podcast. Uh, It's Happy New Year from me, Dave Musgrove, the editor of the magazine. Uh, Now before we kick off, let me just give you a very quick overview of what's in the January issue of the magazine. It's an Empire special, so we've got several features exploring Britain's imperial history. Now, that's in the magazine, but obviously the podcast, we like to do a few different things. First up, we've got Rob Attar, who's been talking to an interesting chap called Ben Barco. Rob, what have you been uh, learning? Well, Ben Barco is director of the Wiener Library, which is a kind of Holocaust study resource centre. And he's been telling us about the library, but also he's talking about the Holocaust in general, about his views on the teaching of the Holocaust in schools, about Holocaust denial and David Irving. And he's also talking about people comparing the Holocaust to other events in history and where he thinks that's legitimate and where he feels that isn't legitimate and possibly racist. Sounds very interesting. We'll be listening to that slightly later on. Now, before we get on to the interviews, let me have a chat with the magazine's deputy editor, Sue Wingrove, who's in charge of our book reviews section. So, Sue, what's in the book reviews this month? Hello. Right, well, our pick of the month this month was Old World, New World by Kathleen Burke. Now, 400 years ago, Jamestown was founded, and that was the first successful English settlement in what would become the USA. Readers may remember that we did a series of features on our 400 years special relationship with the States, and this book follows the same kind of theme. As our reviewer said, it's a hefty, panoramic, entertaining and well-paced account of British-American relations. It's... Written by Kathleen Burke, who is a professor of history at University College London, and she's US-born and bred, and she enjoys a special, really sort of bi-national look at the relationship. So it's really written either from an American or a British point of view, which I think gives it special value. And I suppose the main theme of the book is the political relationship from the colony's original sort of setting up in America, really down to the time when Britain was overtaken in that relationship by the States, and the States really had the upper hand after the Second World War. So the historic roles had become reversed, really. And our reviewer was Richard Carbardine, who's Professor of American History at St Catherine's Oxford. And he really liked this book. He thought it was a fine achievement and it was a great book for the general reader. So that's a good one to, to look out for. Great. That's, that's two big names we've got there. Richard Carwardine is on our advisory panel and is one of the leading American history scholars, and uh, as is Kathleen Burke, to be honest. Um, I nipped over to Jamestown on our press trip last year. 
and uh, it's a very interesting place. Um, they've recreated what, what they think 1607 Jamestown might have looked like. And the interesting thing is, actually, is that 1607, with the, the foundation of Jamestown, isn't considered by that many Americans to be that important. They think mostly of the Pilgrim Fathers, slightly later, as, as the key episode in, in American history. So it's been very interesting to see how this book's received uh, over there. So mm. what else have we got in, in, well, in reviews this month? Well, it's interesting you mentioned the, um, the Pilgrim Fathers because um, another book that we look at this month is um, Pilgrim. New World Settlers and the Call of Home by Susan Hardman Moore. Now, contrary to popular mythology, America wasn't a final destination for huddled masses yearning to be free because quite a lot of them went home again afterwards. In the 1630s, between 13,000 and 21,000 English settlers migrated to the wilderness of New England, but a third of them returned home afterwards, and that's something that hasn't really been covered in great detail before. And in this book, Susan Hardman Moore looks at the um, accounts of thousands of returnees, if you like, who came back for various reasons from America. Now, there were obviously had, you know, various motives for coming home from sort of personal motives, such as simply missing families and friends and neighbours, as to thinking really that, you know, England had changed later on in the 17th century, and it was now okay to come back and and find out what was happening again in the old world and perhaps make a better go of it um, this time. Um, They thought perhaps they might have more you know, more freedom or whatever. Um, so that's that's really quite an interesting look at um, at an old subject. Okay. And uh, taking on, on a new subject for the book review section, we've, we've started a new section there, haven't we? So, see, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. I think um, sometimes, I mean, we cover some great, you know, new books in, in our um, book review section. But, of course, we mustn't forget the old, um, you know, the older um, books, many of which might be reprints or... Um, Classics, which we haven't covered so far. So this is a great chance to do a sort of roundup of various topics. And the first topic is the medieval crusades. And uh, I asked Jonathan Phillips, who's Professor of Crusading History at Royal Holloway, University of London, to um, recommend five books on this um, topic, which obviously was the clash between Islam and Christianity. Now, previously, this subject has been... I think seen as more of a sort of exciting romp, um, you know, the allure of knights venturing overseas um, has exerted a hold on our imagination. But since 9-11, increasingly people are are looking at the relationship between Christianity and Islam um, and wondering how it got to the the state it is today and what it's been like through history for these two major um, religions. Um, So I think there's really, you know, that gives another added um, interest in in this sort of subject. Um, Now, Jonathan recommends five books. Um, Some of them are new and some of them are older ones. And some of them are primary sources, um, such as that by Robert the Monk, uh, who wrote the history of the First Crusade um, soon after it happened. Um, And it's uh, it's got a sort of sensationalist style, um, which, you know, can be quite interesting because it's it's great to read history, but also to read... um, primary sources is 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 good too um he also looks at um a book which is called the crusades islamic perspectives by carol hillenbrand um and this brings to the fore the ideas personalities and culture of the muslim middle east at the time of the crusades um and this is a subject that's remained obscure really until fairly recently obviously because of the language barrier if nothing else Good stuff. So for anyone who wants to get into the subject of the Crusades, we've got a a very good introduction there from Jonathan Phillips. Yeah, and we'll be having um, one of these every month. So next month in February, we'll be looking at Christian Woolmar. We'll be looking at the history of the railways. 
And the month after that, Roger and Morehouse will be looking at books on Hitler. Excellent. So sound advice for building everyone's history libraries. Of course, all the things we're talking about in this podcast are also featured in this month's BBC History magazine, which you can buy in all good news agents in the UK and in borders in the US. The magazine is on sale on the last Tuesday of every month for just £3.60. And you can save money and a trip to the shops by subscribing. UK podcast listeners can subscribe today for just £16.20 every six issues, and that's a saving of 25% on the cover price. Alternatively, you can order online at www.subscribeonline.co.uk forward slash history magazine, quoting pod 07, or call our hotline on 0844-844-0250. Now on with the interviews. And first up is an interview with Professor Ronald Hutton, who's one of the leading experts on the history of witchcraft. He's the very first person we've invited into the all-new BBC History magazine Time Machine. So let's now take a listen to the year that he'd most like to go back to visit and find out what he'd want to learn. If I'm going to be able to ask questions, which to me gets even better results, then a number of things have to change. The first is I can't go back much further than the last century because my attitudes, my language are going to be subtly different and would give me away. I'd have to be an invisible observer there. Second thing is I need to be able to get into the kind of society in which I'm interested So I would love, for example, to be hanging around uh, Charles II's uh, private rooms at Whitehall Mm -hmm. to find out why the secret treaty of Dover was signed in 1670. But I can come up with no plausible disguise that would get me accepted by King Charles and his inner councils. It would take me years and years of working my way, and I haven't got them. So I have to be in a fairly recent time, and I have to be in the kind of company which I understand instinctively best, so that on a short acquaintance um, I can find out what I want. Okay. So I'm heading for 1946, yeah. okay. and I want to know how it was that England gave its only religion to the world. Because right. the only religion that the English have actually formed completely, as opposed to producing brands of others like Christianity, yeah. is modern pagan witchcraft, okay. otherwise known as Wicca. Okay, so, W-I-C-C-A. So what happened in 1946 then? That's the crucial year because we don't know where it came from. We know it was publicised by a man called Gerald Gardner, yep. who was a returned civil servant, and who was in other respects a conservative, rollicking, adventurous, old-style English gent. Mm-hmm. So why does a character like this come up with a religion which is pagan and involves trance work and mixed-sex nudity at its rites and embodies the figure of the witch? About as desperately counter-cultural a religion as you can get. Exactly. And particularly in 1946, seems like an odd time to, yeah. to be doing something like that. Yeah, something that scares the pants off the bourgeoisie, yeah. literally. Yeah. So what we know is that it appears with Gardner, he may have invented it, but he claimed always he got it from an older tradition, yeah. specifically from an old lady and her friends in the New Forest. And so if I could hunt down Gardner in 1946... Yeah. And I know where he was at that time. Where would he have been? He was travelling between the New Forest area and London. Yeah. I know both his addresses. Okay. Then I could get chummy with him, yeah. having similar interests, yeah. and discover what he was up to. Uh-huh. And that year nails it. If he had never heard of Wicker at that time, clearly he made it up later. Mm-hmm. If he then told me the story that he'd met the old lady in the 1930s, then I'd believe him a lot better than most people do now. And maybe I could get to meet some of the people who are then still alive and be introduced to them. And if he started admitting he's got this idea for a great new religion and is thinking about how he's going about it, then I could both feel that's it, I've clinched it equally. 
uh, and even if I liked Muckian and helped make a new religion with him. <laughs> so what's the general consensus now in, on the origins of Wicker then? Is it thought that it was Gardner at that time, or is it thought that he was basing it on something beforehand? Basically, what historical argument would you want to be settling by, by going and meeting him in 1946? By the, the argument of most uh, historians is that Gardner made it up. Right. The argument of some of his most devoted modern followers is that he told the truth. There's an older religion which he yeah. discovered. Yeah. And I think there is no way at present of telling between the two. Okay. So basically it would be a case of going and finding this man Gardner and saying, what, what are you doing? What's going yes. on in your mind? Hello, Gerald. You were out in Malaya, weren't you? Yes, uh, I was out in India. Right. Which I, I was. I was born in India myself, yeah. so I have that colonial background. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I share a lot of Gardner's interests, admittedly, as a historian. Yeah. And he knew some fascinating people. Uh-huh. So the chances of uh, buying him a few chotabegs and uh, chatting about the East and then chatting about witchcraft and magic and yeah. uh, then pooling our enthusiasms are absolutely certain. Okay. There's no great risk of failure. So would you want to be sort of moving into a circle as friends as well, then? Would there be other people you'd want to meet associated? Yes, I'd like to meet his friends, but his friends are always cast into his shadow in right. history. Yeah. It could be that some of them are even more interesting. Yeah. And he got to know great figures like Alistair Crowley right. okay. later, yeah. who'd still be alive then, and I could pop over and have a chat with Crowley, which is equally easy, since I know where he was, and he was glad to receive visitors. <laughs> so is there anything else you'd like to see in 1946? I mean, it's, a, it's quite a year, isn't it? The, you know, the war's just over, and we've got austerity Britain, haven't we? So is there anything else you'd like to see, or would you really just be wanting to focus on gardening? I'd out? focus on that one task, yeah. because apart from that, I wouldn't like to hang around 1946. I don't suppose... Dreadful food, dreadful yeah. sex, not, dreadful not weather. <laughs> not a great year. Yeah. But for this particular... Yeah. Yeah. purpose. I actually could solve, without any doubt, a mystery which otherwise is never likely to be cracked. Yeah. And what's happened to the Wicca religion since then, then? Is it, it's become one of the fastest growing in the Western world, and it uh, has adherents all across it, especially in America, where there are more Wiccans than anywhere else. Yeah. So, so in that case, the year 1946 is it's quite an important year in that sense, in, in the development of this new religion, which... Is it an important religion today, would you say? Well, it's often said to be the fastest growing in the country. That's not quite right. It helped inspire a whole constellation of religions, which we call modern paganism, which includes types of modern druids and shaman, northern traditions. But the basic model they use is that developed by Wiccans, possibly Gardner and his friends. Okay. And what happened to Gardner after...? He became a a media star, found on TV and radio, the best-known witch in the world. Yeah. And he died uh, full of years in 1964. Okay. And so if, um, for anyone else who, who can't get into our time machine with us uh, and can't go back to 46, how would they find out more about Gardner? What would they read? What would they... You can go down to the Museum of Witchcraft at yep. Boss Castle in Cornwall, which is absolutely superb. Is that, still, is that still okay after the flooding? It's got gutted by the floods. Yeah. They were very lucky or providentially protected <laughs> and managed to get their collection back together again yeah. and to build on the tragedy to produce uh, an even better yeah. building. And if they want to, they can read Gerald Gardner's books, just still found the basement of most public libraries and sell like hotcakes on the internet. Uh-huh. Witchcraft today is his most famous. Right. And what about stuff that you've written? Have you got anything that's specifically on him? I've got a hot book called The Triumph of the Moon, right. a history of modern pagan witchcraft, yep. of which he is perhaps the most important single character. Okay. Now, I'm very interested to, to, to hear why, why it's 46, and I understand your reasons of, of why you'd want to go there, because you'd, you'd feel 
you could at least make a make an association with the people. I was kind of when I you thought well he's going to go for sixteen forties or something and he's going to you know go on and find out what Matthew Hopkins was up to or something like that. But it's 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 forty six. Well, the trouble is we know what Matthew Hopkins is up to. There's not much mystery there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I could go back to the battlefield of Marston Moor and ask Prince Rupert why he chose to knock off and have supper at the very moment that Cromwell attacked. But in a sense, we know he, he's exhausted. He assumes the enemy isn't going to attack. Yeah. There's not the same kind of mystery, or as here, we have the birth of a whole religion yeah. left in doubt. Brilliant. This month sees Holocaust Memorial Day, and to coincide with that, we've got a couple of features in the magazine. We have Donald Bloxham talking about genocides through history and how, if at all, the international community has learned from previous genocides. And we also have Jeremy Black, who's talking about interpretations of the Holocaust since it happened in the Second World War. And for the podcast, I've been speaking to Ben Barco of the Wiener Library about how our understanding of the Holocaust has developed over recent years. What are the origins of the library? Well, the library is actually the, the oldest institution anywhere in the world created to document the Holocaust, and its history goes back to 1933, when a man called Alfred Wiener fled mm. Germany after the Nazis took power and started collecting every bit of information he could get about who they were, what their activities were, what their plans were, and so on. So the original purpose was to challenge the Nazis rather than to record the Holocaust? Absolutely. He had been doing his work since the mid-1920s, trying to make people understand what the danger was if they did come to power. Mm -hmm. And then once they were in power, he fled and he continued to to try to spread the word about how dangerous the regime was to other countries around the world. And then I suppose after the Second World War, did its purpose change? Of course. After the the end of the war, he recast it as a place of study primarily and a place where the history of the Holocaust could be researched and, and written about. And the earliest books covering the subject were written here and even today it remains a it's certainly Britain's largest and most important collection on the subject and one of the finest collections anywhere in the world. Does the library's purpose remain the same as it was after the Second World War today? Yes, pretty much, pretty much. It's, it's a place where anybody can come to look into the whole of the subject matter. And I guess, if anything, we are slowly widening the remit of the library, so we're increasingly examining questions of comparative genocide and how the huge body of knowledge that has built up around the Holocaust can be put to work thinking about and trying to understand other situations that arise. So perhaps other potential genocides? Exactly. So do policymakers make use of your facilities? Yes, they do. And policymakers, as well as journalists, academic researchers and students are the main users. We still get a large number of people whose families were in some way involved in the Holocaust. Obviously less and less survivors, but we're getting larger numbers of their children and grandchildren who are looking into their families' histories. And just anybody who is who has an interest. Do you feel that um, interest in the Holocaust has perhaps actually grown in recent years in Britain? I think interest has certainly grown. I think interest has grown enormously. I don't actually think that understanding of it has grown proportionately. Why would that be? 
I think the education uh, offered in in schools and so on is broadly speaking quite poor and I think there's a lot of I would say awareness of the Holocaust has has grown hugely but understanding of it not and I think a lot of people think of it in fairly simple and even simplistic terms rather than engaging with the enormous historical complexities that are involved and and the library is a place where people can come when they're ready to, to engage with the serious and complex historical processes that go to create such an event rather than the sort of very emotional or simplistic statements about it that arise, say, out of a ceremony at Holocaust Memorial Day. So how, how do you think the public understanding of the Holocaust could be improved? Mm, that's a very interesting question. <laughs> I Is think it down to schools? I think schools are a starting point. I personally, and it's only my personal view, question whether the Holocaust is something that people of school age are actually able to get come to terms with in its complexity. I think it's more appropriate for, for undergraduate students to, to take on because it is a very complicated history. And it's not a history purely of blacks and whites, good and evil but many shades of grey as well. And I think those historical nuances are very hard for school children to take on and are more suited to older students. There's been a lot of kind of maybe almost criticism recently of a so-called Holocaust business. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think that is accurate or do you think those criticisms are unfounded? No, I think the criticisms are unfounded and unjustified. I think to some extent those criticisms arise out of the Holocaust having been, as it were, flavour of the month, and there has really been saturation coverage of it. At times, generally, I think people have become a little bit fed up with it, but underlying that, I think some people are motivated for reasons of of anti-Semitism and racism to talk about a Holocaust industry, which is a disguised way of saying that the Holocaust has been the excuse for Jews to get lots of money out of Germany and so on and so on and, and promote the state of Israel. So I think it's unjustified to talk about a Holocaust industry, but I do think that public interest in the subject may have peaked or is peaking. Something I suppose a bit related to that is the point that there's a lot of comparisons made of other historical events with the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think that can ever be justified, or do you think the uniqueness of the Holocaust should always be stressed? No, I think comparison is legitimate. I mm-hmm. think it has to be done from a, an informed and critical standpoint. But I I certainly think comparison is legitimate. I think what is not legitimate is statements about something like the AIDS Holocaust. That is a nonsensical statement. And I think things can go wrong if, for instance, a country's, you know, the UK's immigration policy is likened to something from the Nazi era, which which it plainly and obviously is not. And it's not legitimate if you know even if one is is very critical of the policies of the israeli government there is no historical justification whatever for comparing the situation of the palestinians with that of the jews in the holocaust so legitimate comparisons are to be made and i think there is a great deal to be learned by making them so by analyzing 
what took place in the Rwandan genocide in relation to what took place in the Holocaust, one may be able to understand certain things about the, the Rwandan genocide better. And I suppose another kind of contentious issue at the moment, obviously with David Irving in the news, mm-hmm. is uh, the idea of free speech and whether or not we should have a law in England like they have in some places on the continent that says you're not allowed to deny the Holocaust. Do you, th- do you think that would be a good idea? I'm not personally in favour of a law saying that it should be a criminal offence to deny the Holocaust, but I think it's shocking that a man like Irving, who is proven to be a liar and a falsifier of historical fact and an anti-Semite and a Nazi, that a man like that gets invitations to address the topic of free speech, I think is, is little short of scandalous. So that's a different issue, really, from whether he has a right to say it, is whether he should be invited. Yes, I, I think, in a sense, he should have the right to say it, but there should be no public platform for him to say it from. I mean, and do you think this kind of relates to the point that people may not always treat it with sufficient sensitivity? I think that's certainly the case. I think it is underestimated, broadly speaking, what an undercurrent of anti-Semitism there is, not necessarily Mm. in Britain, but around the world, which nevertheless is picked up in Britain in certain attitudes towards the Holocaust, which are based on deliberate falsifications or on, on very, very partial understanding. Coming back to the library, mm. what, what kind of plans do you have for the library in the future? The main plan we have at the moment is that we need to relocate the library. We're not able to stay in the building we've occupied for the last decades beyond the next couple of years, so we need to find a new home for the library. And in terms of our activities, we will continue to provide all the services we do now and to have public lectures and conferences and all sorts of activities. And increasingly, we will make ourselves into a resource for those who want to study genocide as a wider issue in relation to the Holocaust. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. 
do you get quite a lot of people coming to study other genocides? Well, at the moment, not. I mean, we have material here to study the issue of comparison as applied to genocides, but this will be a new direction that we'll be striking out in. We will not be moving away or ignoring our core subject. Mm. We'll continue to be as strong on that, and that will always be where we are rooted. But we want to make all the learning and all the understanding and wisdom that has grown up around the study of the Holocaust available to people who are studying other situations. So if, if people want to visit the library until the move, where is it located? It's central London? Yes, it's in central London. It's just off Great Portland Street. It's at, at 4 Devonshire Street. So Great Portland Street Tube or Regent's Park Tube are the nearest. And it's open from Monday to Friday, 10 to 5.30. And it is open to anybody who wants to, to come along. And for our final interview this month, I've been taking a trip around the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich, having a look at their brand new gallery. It's called Atlantic Worlds, it's a permanent gallery, and I took a stroll around it in the company of the exhibition manager, Michael Toey. I'm Michael Toey, I'm the exhibitions manager at the National Maritime Museum, um, and I was the project manager working on this gallery. Okay. And the exhibition is called Atlantic Worlds. Michael, what's, what's this all about? What's the reason for doing this? Well, basically, this gallery kind of looks at the Atlantic as a, as a bridge between different continents. It's about the kind of exchanges between Europe and the Americas and Africa in the 18th and 19th century. So we're literally looking at everything that's happening across the Atlantic and that time frame. So that encompasses um, trade um, and commerce, exploration and cultural encounters, war and conflict, and also, of course, enslavement, abolition and resistance to enslavement. And the time scale is quite interesting. You're going from the um, you're going for three centuries, aren't you? From 16th up to the 19th century, is that about right? That That's about right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we we start roughly around um, 1600. We do have some kind of 16th century kind of material in the gallery as well, and then we go roughly up to about 1850. Although the majority of our collections at the National Maritime Museum are from the 18th and 19th century, so most of what's in the gallery dates from those two centuries. So is that the what's led the time scale on this? What your exhibition, what your collections actually cover? Why haven't you taken up to the present day? Yes, that's right. I mean, we are being driven by the collections we have in the National Maritime Museum, so it's largely those kind of areas. Although where we feel that we need to go back a little bit earlier or go back a little bit later, we've done that. We've done that too. But we also kind of wanted to draw a line in around 1850 because we simply don't have the collections from the 20th century to enable us to realistically talk in, in a lot of detail about everything that happened after that point. And this is a nice, spacious, large exhibition. It's a permanent exhibition, isn't it? That's right, yes. And it's uh, on the second floor of the National Maritime Museum here in Greenwich. And you're replacing here the uh, exhibition which is called Trade and Empire. So what was that and what's happened to that? Well, that gallery was completed in 1999. And the idea of that was that we looked at, uh, we took all the collections in the museum relating to, I suppose, British imperialism in roughly that kind of time period and put them all into one gallery. Um, And subsequently, in the recent few years, we've acquired a lot more relating to those particular areas. So um, we felt that one gallery just simply wouldn't be enough to kind of to do justice to it. And we also acquired in 2002, um, thanks to support from the Heritage Lottery Funder, um, the Michael Graham Stewart Collection, which is an extensive collection relating to enslavement. And that's a lot of material from the 18th and 19th century. So to coincide with the bicentenary this year, we thought the Atlantic Gallery would be the first starting point, really, to then allow us to kind of subsequently deal with the Indian Ocean and then probably the Pacific as well. So spreading out what we did in 
one gallery, perhaps over three galleries, just to give um, the collections a little bit more space, allow us to get more out onto display, and also kind of deal with this complicated and um, yeah, detailed history as well in a little bit more space than we could do in simply one gallery. So we're here at the, at the opening of the exhibition. We just walked past a couple of fantastic maps um, showing the extent of knowledge of America and Africa in about 1600, I think, and the American one was, was marvellous in that it had the island of California, which I thought yes. was quite nice. And now we're standing in front of a portrait of some of England's first explorers. Um, so, Michael, just tell us a little bit about these three chaps who we're looking at. Well, these chaps are Thomas Cavendish, Sir Francis Drake and Sir John Hawkins. Hawkins is an interesting character for us. We also have another portrait of his on display in the gallery in the slavery section. As well as being an explorer, he was also a a kind of naval commander for the English um, and also Britain's first slave trader, effectively. So for us, he's a very useful character to start to talk about the interconnections between exploration, trade and commerce, and also the beginnings of, of slavery as well as warfare. One of the real messages we're trying to get across in the gallery is that anything that's happening in the Atlantic during this period is probably connected with all of those things that are going on. You can't simply look at war as if it weren't related to trade, as if it weren't related to slavery. All these things are, are interconnected. Okay. Um, so there's two men there who are quite famous and one who perhaps isn't so well known. So what's Cavendish all about? Um, well, he circumnavigated the world eight years after Drake in, in 1586. Great. <laughs> <laughs> it's well known to me as well. <laughs> okay, so we'll, uh, we'll, we'll trek on through it. I mean, the meat of the exhibition is illustrated material, isn't mm-hmm, it? There's not right. so many artefacts on display here. What's the background to that? Well, I mean, our collections in the museum are extensive in terms of prints and drawings and paintings as well as three-dimensional mm-hmm. objects. What we've tried to do is display a mixture of all of them, really being, being driven by the, by the story here as much as anything else. We've used kind of illustrative material where we can do. It's just um, these are the strengths of the particular collection. We have a lot extensive collection of um, works on paper, and that's something that we'll, over the course of this permanent gallery, we'll be getting out as much of that collection as possible. For conservation reasons, we tend to not keep them on display for longer than two years. Mm. So a lot of this material will be rotated over the over the period of time. Okay. Now over here on uh, on our left is a very interesting section on uh, the fisheries in the North Atlantic which is an area that's, that's not been hugely explored in the past in terms of, of our understanding of, um, of the Atlantic as a resource. But I think there was a recent book which suggested that if England hadn't had its North Atlantic fisheries um, off the coast of Newfoundland, then the whole, uh, the whole period of uh, imperialism and the discovery of, of America wouldn't have taken place. So this is mm-hmm. a very important aspect of, of the whole story, isn't it? Absolutely. It was one of the first things that took Europeans across the North Atlantic was the pursuit of these resources, these whales and, um, and, and the codfish. And it's an interesting story in terms of the way that resources are kind of identified and then exploited. And as we know, the, the Grand Banks fisheries off New, Newfoundland are um, virtually exhausted today. And you know, what you see during this period is the identification of these kind of things and the beginning of those exploitations um, in, in a way that's kind of then repeated when we talk about, you know, when we look at the buffalo and things like that in the, in, inside America and then later in the 19th century, this is kind of the, this is the start and this is something that kind of did take people across there. Mm. And then over here we've got, um, we've got some great stuff. We've got something called Scrimshaw. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, Scrimshaw is whalebone, um, and what sailors on whale ships would do is they'd basically create um, folk art and, and craft work from the leftover bits of whalebone which were available to them. So what you, what you have here are these wonderful kind of scenes, often scenes relating to whaling of ships and small boats harpooning whales straight out of, straight out of Moby Dick um, and then carved onto sort of panels or 
teeth or little kind of stay busks as well. Whalebone, of course, were, were used in corsets as well. They, it was, a, um, it was a, a product that became sold back in the UK. But we've got some wonderful examples of these kind of craft work, and it points a little bit towards the kind of the human experience of being on a whaling ship as well as the kind of what exactly people were doing, but it also points to the, something about the human experience of, of whaling for the people involved. Yeah, OK. Now, just as we wander along, I mean... The sense I got of this exhibition is that, um, obviously, you're taking a British perspective on this, though you have tried to bring in the other um, nations that border the Atlantic. What's, what, how, how far have you gone in that, would you say, in terms of delivering an exhibition which, which covers the whole of the Atlantic coast rather than just Britain? Mm. Well, I think we are, I mean, we are the British National Maritime Museum, so our collections are generally relate to the kind of British experience of the, of the Atlantic. But, of course, all, a lot of the other nations, the, the, the Spanish, the Portuguese, um, all European nations were involved in this in some way. Perhaps some of the things that allow us to talk a little bit more about, in particular, the French experience are kind of collections relating to war and conflict. Quite often the British were fighting the French in, across the Atlantic, mm-hmm. so that enables us to kind of bring in some objects for Relate to, relate to that. We have a, a guillotine blade which went across from the French to the, the island of Guadeloupe during the Revolution, but mostly we kind of do take it from a, from a British perspective. Mm. If I was to have one criticism of the exhibition from what mm. I've seen so far, it's the, the very limited coverage you give to the Dutch in the Atlantic mm-hmm. in the 17th century. Obviously, they were a very important player in, uh, in the Atlantic story. You haven't got too much on, on the Dutch. No, we do have a um, Dutch bronze cannon um, from the 17th century, which enables us to, to kind of introduce the idea of, of the Dutch being involved in it. Of course, New York was New Amsterdam before um, before it was New York, so they are, they are a significant player. Mm. But as the majority of our collections are kind of a little bit later in the 18th and 19th century when the Dutch are perhaps mm. less significant in the Atlantic system, it's as much for what we can do with our collections to introduce it and hopefully people will find out more. I mean, I think this gallery dealing with 300 years of history across hundreds of thousands of miles worth of ocean, yeah. we can only really introduce a few ideas and what we're hoping very much is that people will come and um, have their appetite whetted and then go away and hopefully find out more or kind of pursue their own interest in, in one particular area of whatever interests them. Quite. Now, OK, just over here, we've got, we've got the first of an element to this exhibition which is timely and, and probably quite pivotal, I suppose, which is uh, a series of caricatures from the early 19th century on the subject of the slave trade. Obviously, 1807 is the abolition of the, of the slave trade, uh, which is a big anniversary this year. Is, you, you've sort of brought this in um, into, into the middle of the exhibition. Is this, is this sort of slave trade on the sly for people who wouldn't normally go to a slave trade exhibition? What are you, what are you trying to do here? <laughs> Well, we're putting the history of slavery. I mean, we've been the National Maritime Museum has had a long tradition of kind of dealing with slavery as part of our permanent galleries about maritime history. Um, and going back to the, the whole point of the exhibition, you can't talk about what's going on in the Atlantic without an understanding of the transatlantic slave trade and enslavement of the millions of Africans who are forced across. So, what we're, we're not trying to bring it in the slide. What we're trying to do is kind of show how it's actually connected. We're trying to, if you like, kind of show the the why and the consequences of the slave trade, rather than simply focusing on the mechanics. Of of how slavery operated um, and the, 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 the terrible and horrible nature of, of slavery as a system. We're hoping to kind of allow people to kind of then see how it related to war and conflict, how sugar was then consumed in, in, in Britain and how sugar was traded as a commodity and how the French fought the British for control of the sugar islands because of their economic significance, which was then as in turn based on the system of slavery. Um, so we're not trying to kind of slide it in there, we're just trying to kind of show, I, I think, in a kind of... Um, fairly clear way just how interconnected all these things are and how implicated everything that's going on at that time is with the slave system. Okay. 
Have you, have you had any comments so far? I mean, the exhibition hasn't been open too long, but you have any comments from people talking about the importance of the slave trade and their um, their views on it and, and, and what this what this exhibition brings to light on that? Well, obviously, in, as we developed the exhibition to coincide with the bicentenary of the um, Slave Trade Abolition Act, it's been very much in the, in the news and, and very much everywhere this year. We've worked with a, a number of people external to the museum as well as our academic advisors. We've also had a cultural advisory group because we're aware that people have different views on this. Um, and a lot of our early research told us as well that different audience groups might have completely opposed views on what they wanted from a gallery such as this. So we've taken a lot of advice and we've talked to a, talked to a lot of people and we kind of come out with this kind of approach really of kind of not focusing entirely on slavery but rather kind of talking about the why, talking about the, the so what of, of the slavery at that particular period as a way of bringing light to the subject. And I suppose we're helped as well by the fact that this year there's lots of other museums who are doing exhibitions and displays focused entirely on the transatlantic slave trade because it enables us to then sort of take a slightly different approach to it and kind of broaden out the story rather than kind of replicating what people might get at the National Museums Liverpool or Museum in Docklands. Hmm. Okay. Now, another big element to Britain's involvement in the Atlantic is, of course, um, warfare, sea power and the Navy, and there's there's an element of that in mm-hmm. here, isn't there? And I think probably uh, my favourite uh, part of this exhibition, this lovely little diorama of the uh, of the Battle of the Saints down here, which is a beautiful piece of work, which is a, a 3D representation mm-hmm. of, of, of this battle from 1782, um, which is a lovely piece, isn't it? Yes, it's a, it's a beautiful it's a beautiful object. We've had it on, in the museum for a number of years, and it's almost constantly been on display. What we've been able to do in displaying it here is, originally when the diorama diorama was constructed, one would have put a candle in the back to give light across the diorama itself to light the dramatic scene. What we've been able to do is, um, our conservation department obviously wouldn't allow us to put candles into rare kind of objects, but we have been able to put fibre optic lighting through the back um, and light it in such a way to give some of that effect people would have seen in the 18th century when they were looking at this for the first time. Mm-hmm. So I mean, one of the interesting things about it is we're also able to display it with a painting of the Battle of the Saints by Thomas Looney and what you can see is it's almost exactly the same scene. It was a great victory for the British and lots of kind of souvenir paintings, dioramas and such like were, were struck to celebrate the great victory, often taking the same kind of visual material as a starting point. So it's kind of one of these things where we can show it in, in that kind of context. The Battle of the Saints, of course, was the, was the last battle, sea battle of the War of American Independence, right. and you have got quite a lot on um, the fight for American independence, uh, understandably. This is um, the, the Atlantic Wars exhibition, America obviously borders the Atlantic just mm-hmm. as much as Britain does. And what, I think what you do quite nicely is you, you lead from the Seven Years' War, 1756-63, um, mm-hmm. and how that led on to the American War for Independence. So just talk me through what you've got, got on that front. When we looked at developing this exhibition, and once again, it just cut an enormous time span, we talked about what were the, what were the, kind of the entry points, in a way, what were the key moments that we wanted to talk about in order to illustrate sea power, war and conflict, because literally if we spent our entire time recounting every single battle, every single war, then I think our visitors would be quite bored by the end of it. So we picked on the Seven Years' War 
in order, in a way, to illustrate the kind of um, competition between imperial powers for this opening up Atlantic world, but also enable us to talk about native peoples' roles in in that. Obviously, on the side of the French, sometimes on the side of the British, and the other the other times. And we've been able to commission as well a wampum belt, which is the kind of thing that was used to commemorate treaties between European powers and, and natives peoples as part of these kind of cycles of conflict. We, we talk about that because it helps us illustrate some number of points about sort of empires fighting other empires and competing with each other. Um, and then by talking about the American wars of independence, in a way we kind of demonstrate the, the limits of the imperial kind of overstretch. It's kind of what happens if 20 years after being successful on the North American continent, the British Empire is overstretched and then finds itself vulnerable to rebellion and to um, this kind of revolutionary um, impetus from within the colonies themselves. So it's a useful kind of... They're, they're both, I suppose, snapshots. And although we don't go into a lot of detail, hopefully they illustrate these broader points it's about kind of empires and kind of empire building and then also the, the limits of kind of imperial power across a system such as the Atlantic. Okay. So we're now pretty much at the end of the exhibition. If I was to ask you to just sort of sum up what you're hoping um, visitors to the exhibition will mm-hmm. get out of this, well, how, how would you say? I'd hope people would just see some of the kind of the diversity and the richness of this historical period. And although many people might know the, the, the basics of the history of the Atlantic in this period, I'd hope it would kind of enable people to kind of go away and find out more and ex- explore it a little bit more detail because actually it's a lot more interesting and a lot more kind of rich than people might understand. Sure. Are there any highlights that are coming up in this exhibition? Any any displays that you're going to be changing in the next few months that people ought to be looking out for? Um, well, we're constantly changing it over the the, the ten year period. We've um, opened with I think our, our strongest collection of objects on on display. But over the course of, of ten years, obviously, as we acquire more objects and acquire things for the museum and start to in develop our own interpretation, our own understanding, and respond to what our audiences are interested in, we'll continue to develop it. So watch this space. Many thanks, Michael. As I said, that exhibition is held at the National Maritime Museum, which is in Greenwich. You can find out more about the museum by visiting its website, which is www.nmm.ac.uk. That's the end of that. I hope you enjoyed this month's podcast. Do tune in to February's edition. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.